welcome to Off The Record. You can find us at offtherecord.fm to keep up with show notes and to check out what other people are wondering about the show, what we're doing. Sometimes I post a little other fun stuff on offtherecord.fm. If you ever have any feedback, you can ask us a question or send us an email. Sometimes we work that into the show. Um, but let's get into this show. So the first thing we want to talk about this week is a topic Jesse brought up of I guess a lot of times you get asked in the studio whether bands should tour or not, depending, uh, I guess, when they're starting up, right? The kind of smaller band that you might be working with. Yeah, or, or more, like, it can sometimes not even start up, because sometimes it's just a band that hasn't gotten a lot of fan momentum yet. Like, let's say they're at the thou- somewhere between 700 to 1,500 likes on Facebook, If we, even though I hate measuring bands by that. But let's just call that the metric. And whether it's smart for them to go out for two weeks or not, um, so I'm curious what you think about this before I go into mine, since I, I'm on the record with this one, since it's in my book. Yeah, so for me, I'm actually kind of going through that situation right now, where, um, in, in real life, which is always good to talk about. For example, with Light Years, out of, you know, out of the two bands I manage on my own, like Light Years is definitely the smaller one of the two, but we've been working really hard for, since I've been managing them, which is about a year and a half now, to just keep them touring and keep them touring really hard. Um, and it's, and, but now it's kind of reevaluating a thing where it's like, Hey, should we send you out on tour and get you a hundred or $150 a night? Again, something that's not sustainable for anyone to just keep hitting these same markets when maybe it's working, but maybe it's also not. And how do we, how do we kind of decide like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't tour this fall or maybe we should tour this fall. And it's a very difficult. I think it, I think it can be d- difficult if you're a band that has toured, and maybe it wasn't working, and now you need to reevaluate what you're doing. Um, and that's I think that's a situation where we are with a lot of smaller bands right now that that are on maybe a level of where they get posted about on a Property of Zach or Absolute Punk. There are a lot of bands where they get some coverage. They have some group of fans. Maybe they have 4,000 Facebook likes, but maybe it's just not converting into anything on the road. And, you know, it's tough. I, you know, to be like transparent, I don't take any commission money from light years. I, it's just, it's fine. Uh, I, I just want those guys to grow as best as they can. And I'm interested in helping there. But if they're coming home with negative money every time, because we can only get them a tour where, the money isn't there to keep them on the road for 30 days, then I don't know that some, at some point you need to reevaluate because there's only so long you can keep doing that same 15 day tour with a band a little bigger than you, but that's not really bigger than you at all in the same shitty venues, you know? It's true. And I think that there's an interesting thing with this too, that like just now when I was talking about the metric of Facebook likes, I almost feel like what's even more important is like, Yes, you don't have this like crazy level of enthusiasm towards your band yet. And touring can create some of that, but which is a very chicken or the egg thing. But you're exactly right. It's just not sustainable to go out for years and get $150 a night, which is a very typical you're on a tour with a band that does have a lot of enthusiasm, but you know, you're the beginning of the bill. Um, or the first or second band, which is even sad too that sometimes the second on like a four a four band tour is still just getting that $150. But so my thing is, is I always say to these bands, it's like, you know, most of the bands I work with are from the East Coast or somewhere close to it. If you're from Chicago or Louisville or Atlanta or North Carolina or something like that, there's so many cities you could drive to on different weekends and make three-day tours out of it. Going out and playing a weekend, messaging bands on Bandcamp and making connections with the bands that you like the sound of and feel commonality with, that's so much more important because that's where what eventually gets you so you're able to tour. Like when I think back to like yeah, Man Overboard I, I Transit. I agree. And to, po- to say one thing about the $100 uh, like guarantee thing or $150, I think there's two different levels of that that, that I have at least seen being involved where is the, where there's the... Uh, we're the one of four on a tour that is playing 500 to 1,000 cap rooms. And uh, we're, we're going to get $100 a night, but we're going to be playing to 1,000 people that have never seen us every night. And the, the opportune thing there is, hey, we're only getting $100, but 
you know, we're playing, we're playing to thousands of people that have never heard of us. And the, we have a chance of getting a lot of sold merch, uh, because there are just a thousand people here. Um, and that's the kind of tour where you'll take a hundred dollars because hopefully a year from then you could be the two or three or four and be getting double as much money or more. Um, but then on the other side of things, there are those tours where it's like those three small bands that are three steps above local, but two steps above being sustainable where they're only getting a hundred dollars because that's all the money that could really be feasibly coming from tickets sold to them when you factor in the other bands and, they're just two different things in my mind. And the that one where it's like you're going on tour with three bands your same size and you each are getting $100 and you do that tour three times a year, that's the that's the questionable one to me. Not so much the we're going to take a swing at opening some really big tours and hopefully that hopefully that's a worthwhile risk. And that's a great point, Ed. But I, I think the other thing, though, is is like... So when we talk about like how we make growth happen, obviously touring and playing with similar artists is a lot of this growth. And what I was going to say is like, you know, like Man Overboard and Transit started out, you know, they were just doing quick little reekin' runs. Like they might do two days and then they would trade shows with each other because they were friends or like they would like when one of them got a show in upstate New York, they'd get the other one on with them and stuff like that. And you make these bonds with bands that are from other areas and you trade shows and you work together and both of you build together. And that's one of the most important things is that you go on Bandcamp and you search through tags and you listen and you find these bonds. But then you also don't make it that, like, I think everybody thinks that the way they're going to get a booking agent is if they go out for two weeks and play these terrible tours where five dates get canceled. And what really matters is, is booking agents pick up the bands where fans are enthused and that make smart moves and work hard. And as well as work hard, I think we always say, and I just am guilty of this, but they work smart. You want to see a band that's, doing smart things, not just following a formula that they think they're supposed to do. And I think just doing these weekend runs is a lot of the time the best way to start getting that out there and meeting other bands and getting a buzz going. Yeah, I I think it's a very good way to take not necessarily a risk, but do something you clearly want to do, which is play some shows, play some shows with friends, play some shows with a band where you have a like sound, but you may be able to take some of their fans in a good way. And if, you know, let's say you can get $100 for each of those three weekend shows and they're all local in a sense, meaning they're not 12 hours away, they're at max five or six, then it's like, yeah, that's sustainable, that's fun, that keeps you, that makes you excited to do more. Like you don't, I always scratch my head a little bit when I see like, Two random bands, let's just say from like upstate New York. It can be from wherever. It could be from Chicago. Two bands from upstate New York go on a spring break tour that's 15 days or a winter break tour that's 20 days, you know, whatever. And it's like, gosh, like, you know, half of the venues are listed as TBA and that's not touring smart. And like, yeah, the TBA touring is what would be the thing in my mind where it's just like, what are you doing? Like, you, like, I know someone said we're going to let you play a show in California, but to list five TBA shows from, I don't know, Texas to California, just because you want to get there, like, you're going to be losing so much money. I, I can't even imagine, you know? Like, what do you think about that? No, it's exactly the thing. I think that that's a great way of defining is that TBA touring. And a lot of the bands I work with do that TBA touring. And I appreciate their efforts, but it's just like, this is not the smart way of doing things. And to talk about even more of the smart way of doing things, I think one of the things, you know, this technology is now like five years old, but you can click on your Facebook analytics and see where all your fans are in the top cities you're playing in. You can go on Bandcamp and everybody who's, if you're, as long as you're clicking the collect email address option on Bandcamp, you can get all the email addresses and the zip codes for where your fans are. Throw that into some your mailing list software, and it's going to show you where your fans are living. And if it's in cities that you're not playing, like one of the big things, like with, with Man Overboard, we realized, like, eventually as we were like, wow, like Virginia Beach was a town that loved that band. And we weren't hitting it at first. And then the first time they went there, we were like, Holy shit, but I saw that on the demographics, and I kind of had been saying it for a while. And there was another—oh, yeah, it was uh, Western Maryland was really big for us, and we had never hit that before. And, like, learning those little things and then being able to go and say, like, all right, we need to play a show here. There's actually people who want to see us. That takes, like, 20 minutes of work. You could do that on Bandcamp, Facebook— 
MySpace actually had great analytics for this back in the day, but, you know, that's the thing that's passed. Um, <laughs> Next Big Sound has great analytics for this. Um, Bands in town must, right? Did we? Did you say that? Uh, I, you know, I, you know, I actually haven't looked through that, but I imagine, I imagine, they I imagine them are sa- song kick do. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's so many good, I mean, the point is like pick one, choose to use that one. Or pick all of them. We're talking about 20 minutes of work. Yeah, like this is such fast work to do. This is like an easy afternoon when you're like waiting for your significant other to get dressed. Yeah, and then Jesse, maybe you should talk a little just to throw on a little more on that. It's just like Knucklepuck is starting to get into this. But I know like you for Man Overboard, when touring was really kicking off, you guys would do like sometimes specialized newsletters maybe, right? Or... Oh yeah, so so that that's an, another big thing, and one of the things I will always always insist really helps, and no one does is one. Whenever you get to a town, you need to have that mailing list out. You need to be getting email addresses from Bandcamp, and then two, the most important thing is making sure you know which zip code uh, those addresses are in, because. People stop reading your emails if you email them and you're saying, I'm playing Kalamazoo and they live in New York City. They're not going to read your email. You get the zip code and any mailing list software allows you to just email people within, let's say, 50 miles of that zip code. Now, so there's one tricky thing, too, of that. If you put in 50 miles on a New York City date, there's three different areas that no one's traveling to. Totally. If you're playing in Long Island and click fi- and click 50 miles, you're getting tons of New Jersey. And no one from New Jersey wants to go to that hellhole known as Long Island. Learn how to do those nuances, but target emails and just send emails that are zip code targeted whenever you're playing that area a month in advance of the show or when the tickets go on, and you will see improved turnout. These people... We're curious enough to download your music. If they liked it, they're going to be excited that you're coming, and they might not otherwise know. I am the king of finding out a band I love played two nights ago when I see it on Instagram like that night or something because I don't get this stuff all the time, and I have just don't have it. But if I sign up for that band's email address or download on Bandcamp, I find out about it and I go, or I enter them into Songkick. That's another thing. I don't think bands... Uh, tell people enough that they should add them on ban- on Bands in Town and Songkick. Totally, yeah, no, it's, it, the, uh, I don't know, it's just crazy to me that this is one of the simplest thing that you can do, and I'm a person, the opposite of you, that never misses a show, um, like, because I'm in a little bit of a different... Well, you're much more informed than me because of your living, whereas I'm, like, sitting... Definitely, but... In a studio. But because, because people are always like, when is a band coming to town? That took that gave me the initiative to every Sunday. Property is act as a tours you should know post, mm-hmm. and we have tours listed from today through. I don't know. Some are even starting to get posted into next year now. So it's just like there there are these avenues. Whether it's the thing on Property is act, please give me the traffic, or mm-hmm. you know subscribe to all of your favorite bands on Bands in Town. Um, Bands in Town uses an algorithm thing where if you if you sign up and you plug them into Facebook, it show it takes the tracking information of every band that you like on Facebook's tour dates and puts them into an email for you once a week or when tours get announced. And yes, if you don't like bands on Facebook, then that's not a valid thing for you. But I imagine many people who might listen to this show do do that. You know, you weren't on the internet for five days and you come back and you get a Bands in Town email that Knuckle Puck just announced a tour and they're coming to you and here are five other shows that are coming to you in the next two months. That's great. Go to them. And that's also, by the way, for like bands that are maybe listening, like you should be plugged into this stuff too. So you will get that email sent on your behalf for free to your potential fan. We should mention that... You do need to go into the back end of Song Kick and Bands in Town. You do need to do both because different people use yes. different ones of those apps. Um, and you need to add your dates and you need to do all this stuff. And there's tons of cool things in the back end of both of these that get it so fans know when you're doing it. Like, you know, I'm the epitome of this. I may want to see your band and I don't know you're playing because I am too busy to care. But if you make it easy for me, I'm going to come to your show. I'm going to spend money. I'm probably going to buy a T-shirt that I literally only wear to work. And uh, But I work with bands, and it advertises your band all day, too. It, this is all really important stuff that takes no time to do. Definitely. Um, 
I, I just, it frustrates me. Like for, <laughs> like, you know, this week, Real Friends announced a tour this week. I had, you know, I had to enter all the stuff into Bands in Town. And it, I don't know, you know, it took me with distractions and I was very distracted. It took me 20 minutes and I was done. And that, and that was it. And great. And then it blasted out to everyone. And it even shows you how many, like, I don't know, Real Friends have or tens and tens of thousands of trackers uh, like fans who tracked them on bands in town. And so tens of thousands of emails went out on real friends behalf to people, uh, for bands in towns, uh, this week. And that's phenomenal. That's at, that's free advertising for your tour upon getting, you know, on top of getting websites to post about it or press releases or venues to do flyers, etc. Like there are really easy ways for free where it might take you 20 minutes or an hour or whatever of your time to get all this information in there and be smart. Um, so in my mind, since we probably like don't need to hound on this forever, like do smart weekends, do smart weekend tours, like reach out to reach yeah. out to bands that you want to play with if they're around your size. Like that band probably wants to play a weekend tour too. Go for it. Make new friends. You never know how that relationship's going to go five years from now when that band breaks up three different times and then they're in a band, a new band, and they're popular. Like, do that. That's just smart. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think, think to even put it, I'm going to make two two fast points. One, also, Bands in Town and Songkick have Spotify apps that where if somebody even just listens to you on Spotify, they're going to start getting notified about that you play. That's so crucial. And then two, um, here's a roadmap. Do weekend tours first. Start meeting bands. And when you see enthusiasm, the doing the two-week TBA tour does, is not what usually creates the enthusiasm. What creates the enthusiasm is making great music, doing smart moves, and doing these weekend tours enough. And then when it makes sense to drive past where you can no longer we reach on a three-day tour, then it's time to start thinking about the two-week tour. But until then, and if you're not getting that enthusiasm, you're wasting your time and your resources. If you're out on the road, sitting in a van, getting nothing done when you could be at home, making money to support your music, making money to be able to afford a better uh, producer to work with so your music comes out better, it's ridiculous to be going on these draining two-week tours that just destroy your wallet to play to eight people and have five shows canceled out of 14. Yes, no more TBA tours. That's going to be the title of this episode. I like Number that a TV lot. <laughs> so the next segment is about an article that was on um, Digital Music News called Label Tells Band, Stop Making Music, We Will Never Release You From Your Contract. So this is a reality, and it's a scary reality. I think any time we get into the subject of like the horrible things labels can do to you or you just say the word Tony Brummel or Victory Records, bands get horrified because... There are horrible, horrible people out there who could do horrible things to you. So I think the interesting thing to talk about is lots of bands sign contracts with tiny little crappy labels. And some of them are even still so stupid that they have these like crazy clauses for upstream where they say, well, you're stuck in a contract with me for one record and 18 months after that record's released. 18 months these days is 4,000 blog years. Like, that's like four half slice. Like, in 18 months, the crappy genre that you decided to jump on the bandwagon of is probably done sometimes in 18 months. And uh, I think it's very important that bands know that when they're signing a contract, that there needs to, like, um, what I talk about a lot in my book is that there needs to be incentive-based contracts. So in my eyes... You have to make goals with your label and say, you know, if we haven't sound scanned X, we don't owe you album two and we can go our, our other way. You know, if their investment's not working out, it's good for the label to be able to bow out and not have to owe you. So we should also say this. Most contracts with a label say, if we keep you in this contract, we owe you X amount of money for this next record mm -hmm. as an advance. And... You have to make sure that all these things are in there, and this is also part of getting an entertainment lawyer, not your mom's friend who does divorce. <laughs> That's a good one. Do your cut. Oh my God! Do you know how many times I've I've heard that in the studio? Well, this label's interested, but my mom's divorce attorney who really got her a lot of money out of my dad's going to look at it. Great. That's a quote right there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm not even kidding you. Like that's for yeah, real. So like that's not even for real. One time in my life. And I bet. And so to just plug to just say to just hop on there shortly. Like law, entertainment lawyers 
are not looking to like, hopefully are not looking to fuck you over. There are a lot of smaller ones that will help out that would help out because hopefully your band will become really successful and then you'll keep them on board for future deals and they'll get paid through that. So definitely like definitely take the time to investigate, ask around. If you're a small band, like ask around to bands you're friends with or maybe like email Jesse or I or someone like Jesse or I that may have experience with entertainment lawyers. It's definitely like really worth it. Um especially when you're negotiating contracts because even though I'm a man even though I'm a manager and Jesse has managed and we've seen deals like there's still all the legal stuff where no one has any idea what's going on. And there's all kinds of industry standards and stuff that is shifting all the time. And if it's not your job every day to be an entertainment lawyer, your band is not going to get nearly the best deal they could. It's true. So, but to piggyback back to what I was saying about the incentives. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. It's like, yes. So technically, because this band's contract, they're kind of saying the thing of that, like basically the label's like, we're going to just ride you out for as long as we can. And in general, in most like professional indie labels, that I'm going to, you know, bar the victory records of the world um, and some of the other labels that are notorious for bad contracts. Most of the indie labels contracts have clauses such as even the same thing of like, you know, if they're 90 days late on getting you a statement, you can get that record back. And that happens all the time. That's how Green Day and Rancid got all those lookout records back because they weren't getting paid. Um, Go-Kart Records, the label I used to work for, Anti-Flag was on for a record. And when um, the label got swamped with how big it got so fast, it fell behind on its accounting and Anti-Flag was able to win back the record um, because they the label just grew too fast and they couldn't keep up. And this happens a lot. And I mean, actually, it's really funny, too, because now that I think about it, Zach, Jade Tree got a bunch of those lookout records from, like, Avail and stuff like that and reissued them. Mm-hmm. And did you know someone bought Lookout? I did. You know, I actually am friends with the people who, the company that's doing that. We have uh, mutual friends. I've hung out with them at some parties before. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing about the royalties. And I think this is kind of a failure on band's part that is not just because they're in when when something like when when there when there are situations that are shitty that can be remedied and bands or managers or whomever don't seek to remedy them i don't think that's because they're in bands i think because this is kind of like a really normal human life thing where you're in a really crappy situation and you're not getting what's like legally owed to you and you're like oh i'm not gonna fight this or i'm not gonna like put in this effort or no, this is just how the music industry works, whatever. Like there are a lot of people like that. And I'm not saying those people Mm -hmm. are dumb or idiots or bad people or lazy or whatever. That's just like kind of, I think a worldwide mentality for a lot of things in life at this point. But if there is a situation in my mind where it's like, or clearly it's like, yeah, you haven't paid us in our 90 day statement or, you know, you haven't paid us in a year and we've clearly recouped. We're on the third pressing of our record. Right. And we've never seen a dime. Mm It's not actually going to take that much work to send, to get a lawyer to send some kind of paperwork that's like, you pay us now or you give us our record. It seems like a large obstacle of work to go do, right? To go get that piece of paper made and authenticized and whatever. But it's not when you factor in what it could mean for your band's livelihood for the rest of the career, you know? It's true. And... um so, but to get into some of this contract stuff too, of like what you should be looking for, eighteen months is ridiculous to have your to be to say like so. Let's say the labels basically saying that they have this like upstream clause. So, an upstream clause is that for eighteen months after they've put out your last record, if you sign to another label, they want money to release you from the contract if you want to put out a record within eighteen months of that record. So, this is stupid for the label you were on in the first place as well because. If you have a good buzz and then you sign to a bigger label, that record's going to sell better for that label that you were just on. If you keep your momentum going and you do this and then their back catalog starts like, hey, it sure worked well for Green Day with Lookout. They still didn't do it. In nine months, you could put out a record and this label doesn't get the $3,000. They might get $10,000 for your back catalog because you kept your momentum going and you made your record within a year of the last one that everybody was psyched on. And everything keeps growing and growing and growing. 
you have to make sure that there is not ridiculous, ridiculous time limits on how long they can do it. And it also has to be built into the uh, contract. Like, So if you get a contract from a decent indie, it will, let's say it's a three-album deal. Your first album may have a budget of $10,000 if you're signing to a good label. Right. The next one should probably be somewhere around 15 to 20, and the one after that should be 30 if they decide to keep you in your contract and not drop you. Part of the whole concept of dropping is we don't see the the reward being as good as the risk of giving you this more money, the greater budget that we are going to give you for this next record. Yeah, this is actually a conversation I've been having with the Jade Tree guys a lot um, as I've just learned more and more, as I'm learning more and more about the history of the label where... Band X, right? Band X had a, in 1994, had a contract for, you know, $4,000 for their first album. And that album sold 40,000 records and everyone got paid a lot because they're 50 50 deals. And then, and the band was just fine doing it. No one was like, God, we need a budget of 50 grand for the next record. But so for the next record, maybe they got 10 grand. Everything went well again. But then it, then it's like 2002, let's say. Some bands are making it to MTV and some bands are getting really big and all these major labels are signing these bands. And then a lot of the bands on Jade Tree were like, nah, we need like a $40,000 budget and a $20,000 budget for a music video. And it got to this point for Jade Tree where they were like, God, we want to work with you guys so badly. And I know you want to work with us, but you know, if, if some major label for one album is offering you 50 grand, like... Just go take it because we can't, our label will sink if we do that. Um, and there was a lot of that with J-Tree as, as sort of the, that era of the music scene peaked. Um, and it's it's interesting to me because, you know, that that's not on the label's fault. That was not necessarily on the band's fault either. But if there's a, if there's a demand and a market for that stuff, then, you know, technically the bands have the right to go get it. But... You know, it's definitely fair of the label, and this isn't to like say I'm like looking to bands getting screwed here. But do you really need that if you're a punk rock band? Do you really need that twenty thousand dollar budget? Like, maybe not. Depends on the band. It does depend on the band. Certainly, it depends. Every every situation is mostly different, of course. But you know, as much as you want to make sure, and what I'm trying to say is, as much as you want to make sure the label is not screwing you over, and that you want to get the best deal. When it comes to album two or album three, it's it's just important in my mind that you should be realistic about what you need, how you plan to use it, and what you're going to do with it. Because um, yeah, a lot a lot of bad stuff can happen with labels, but a lot of uh, bands can do a lot of stupid stuff too. And it's just important in my mind to to be realistic on your own band and your own future, while also making sure everything you have going on with a label is secure and uh, long term for you as well. Yeah, and you know, here here's an interesting one. So, I was fortunate enough to come up in the music business when it was still pre-Napster and you know, getting ridiculous. And I got to do, you know, I got to do a, a, a two and a half million dollar record at one point. There used to be this concept. Um, Jack Douglas, who produced a lot of crazy stuff, like everything from Aerosmith to the John Lennon Yoko Ono records and everything. Um, one of my mentors, Alan Douches, worked under him, and he would always say to make the record go over budget because then the label's going to have to work it hard to recoup. And so now, <laughs> you make the record go budget, go over budget, a lot of times the label's just so exhausted with you, they're like, ah, this could be a lot of work for the world, maybe we just cut our losses. I mean, totally. it can work so many different ways, and but it could also be the thing of like, so, let's just say this, and you may not even know this about Jade Tree, but I was friends with a lot of the producers doing the classic Jade Tree records, and people weren't always psyched about Jade Tree's record budgets compared to other labels. And it was a complaint that a lot of producers had because then they would make a massive amount of money and the producers would be kind of bitter that they're like, I just did this for nothing and I didn't get, I'm not really getting a reward. Because then a lot of labels also wouldn't do a point system for producers, which means that, so a point system, so for example, I produce a lot of records where I say, if you're not going to give me a good enough budget, you're going to have to pay me if this record sells over, I usually do over 10,000 uh, copies, then you're paying me X amount of money that I did such a great job that I made this for no money for you that you're now making a boatload of money and it's not going to just be on my back. 
There's this big balance of two of like, you know, so let's say on album three, you get that 30,000 and you're not one of those bands that needs $30,000 to make an amazing record. Like it's just like, there's no way what a lot of bands do instead is they put it in their pockets and they go and um, buy a flat screen. Right. And that's a funny one too. Cause yes, it's kind of like, well, yes, you did earn that advance. And you know, technically with these record budgets, while your label may be mad at you, Technically, in most of the contracts, that's your money to spend. Um, you're you're entitled to that thirty thousand dollars, and if you want to go buy drugs with it and record your next record on GarageBand in your room, you're kind of entitled to it. Doesn't mean the label has to put it out. It doesn't mean you won't have the worst reputation, but that kind of is your money. And it's also smart to budget and say, you know what, we don't need this much money, and you got to remember, you owe the label that money. You don't make a cent back off the sales until that $30,000 is reached. So you have to hedge your bet and say, would I rather just start making the money back or would I rather keep this free money? And that's an interesting concept as well because some people go, you know what? This money's a sure thing. I'm going to take this and I'm, I'm going to invest in my friend's restaurant with $10,000. Yeah, or or I think the the best example is like I'm going to – I'm gonna. We're gonna take this money and build a studio in our place. Yes. And that, to me, that's my favorite thing when bands use their money smartly. So next time when it's album three or album four, they can just record either by themselves if they don't need or want a producer, or they could just bring in a producer and they can engineer, you know, some sort of mix of everything together. But I think there are smart ways to spend that money and and silly ways to spend that money. Um, Agreed, but. It's something I've been thinking about since the episode we aired on our favorite albums is, let's remember, out of 25, there was only one that was self-produced. And while I do think it's smart for bands to get their own studio, I to get on a totally side tangent, I don't always think it's smart that you get your producer, and your producer is usually comfortable and is more comfortable in his own studio, and that's where he has standards and all the right equipment. It's great for you to be able to rehearse and write in that studio, and it's very sustainable if you want to do small releases. I fully encourage that, but I don't always encourage the self-production thing, and I think that I had a real big reassessment of that um, from that episode. And, you know, I get, in my mind, what like popped up in my head is Manchester Orchestra. They're a different kind of band. Yes. They're like, you know, that's a that kind of band is the exception to the rule, probably. But they have an outside producer on all Except those records. This one, actually. They have an outside mixer Except on all those on records. Cope. No, the, the, I looked it up. I, I thought it was self-produced too. It's the same guy who did no, Michael Virgin. So he he came in for the start. I listened to this podcast with Andy on on Matt Pryor's show the other day, and uh, his kid, the produce, I forget the producer's name. I feel bad. Um, yeah, I, I can't his even son either. was like in a summer softball league, and he was the coach, and he just really wanted to spend time at home that summer. So he came in and like started and then left and print like that internally huh. they kind of carried the weight the rest of the way. Interesting. Yeah. Well, they still credited him. Yeah, That's yeah, why yeah, I saw totally. It. Um, but yeah, I, even even a band like that, yes. Well, but you, you know what's even a funnier thing? Let's let's get into Jimmy Eat World, and I know this is a huge tangent, but like you know, Jimmy Eat World did that record with Butch Vig where he barely came to the studio. They just mailed him stuff and said, "You have another perspective on this." And truth be told, I do that a lot of time for bands too, where they self track is like. I'm like, sure, get a drum sound, send it to me, let me hear it, and let me hear it with the scratch tracks. So I'll give you my input. I basically just charge by the hour, and then I mix it at the end. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't I've know done that, that a couple story, times. Actually. Uh, the Butch Fig produced record, which I want to say is Chase This Light. Yeah, maybe that's it. He, yeah, literally just did corresponded, and I want to say he even did that in large part with Against Me Too, but I could be totally wrong about that and just remembering it wrong. Who knows? But that is a thing that happens. Like, people do that and, yes, get your own studio, but no, I don't know always that self-produced is great. And that could be just me talking as a producer, but sure. <laughs> Works really good for all the dance records I listen to. Yeah, you know, I agree. All the dance records I listen to, I definitely... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, to sum up, get a get an entertainment lawyer. If no one has paid you uh, in the amount of time they are legally binding to pay you, send a stern letter that says they either need to pay you or you're taking your master's back or whatever your, your legal rights are. Uh, beware of upstreams. Beware of Tony Brummel, just in general. Always think of him in the back <laughs> of your mind. Is this a contract Tony would give me? If yes, pass. Well, I'd also remember, if you're signed to a small label, Odds are they have no clue what they're doing with that contract, and you may need somebody in there to not ruin your life. I've seen a lot of bands' careers ruined by really dumb things that were in a small labels contract that has held back their progress. 
You know, I'm still waiting on Victory to send a contract to Knuckle Puck. Please do. <laughs> I just want to see it. I want you to buy me dinner, Tony. Yeah? I'm in Chicago. I feel like, I, I don't know, I'm very nervous about Knuckle Puck's future if we never get an offer from Victory in Chicago. That I worry, you know, I worry about that every night. I'm thinking up late, being like, when when's that Tony contract coming? I, I think it's really that you're hoping to get an id so you could be closer to your beer. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to post it on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I think I'd be. Really I think fun, it would actually. be too. <laughs> um, so and highly illegal. Yeah, that's okay. You know, he just lost all his money to a day to remember. Anyway, our last thing we want to talk about this week, we got a, we got a cool listener question um, that was a little follow-up to our favorite albums episode, uh, which if you listened to, thank you. We got some really cool feedback. And the question was, uh, I'm really interested to see what bands, good or bad, that got uh, you into music, me, uh, meaning Jesse and I. The bands you guys grew up on and that shaped you into your music taste. Now, I know that you talked a little bit about this, uh, but... So Jesse, what really glam, what glam metal bands or what hair metal bands <laughs> did you like when I was not even a thought? When you were not not even a thought. Um, Guns N' Roses, the band that changed my life. I said it on the previous episode that I wanted to be a cop when I grew up, <laughs> and I know it just never stops being funny, right? Um, and then, uh, yeah, I saw the Sweet Child of Mine video. I was like, look at how cool these guys are. They're smoking cigarettes. They're hanging out with chicks. They look so cool. And, like, I soon became a fifth grader with, like, the longest hair of my school and leather pants and all sorts Whoa, of crazy wait, stuff. So and when we took that picture next to Black Veil Brides, that was just you. Oh, I didn't look like that. Come on, I, I, I'll send you a picture for the uh, sh- the sh- the show uh, later. It's it's really I really funny. appreciate that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll get on that right after this is done because th- th- that that could exist on the internet. But um, but I had a weird trajectory, and it's kind of the same thing. Like when we talk about the dance stuff, is that I always, just as I was in a rock band when I grew up, I was in a rap group, <gasps> and something people probably don't know about me that I should, but like, you know, I've produced a top 40 rap song before in my life, and I always had these two trajectories where I really liked both things, and that rap side kind of went to dance after a while, even though I still like hip-hop a lot, but Public Enemy was huge for me, is that anger I heard in them and NWA and Two Live Crew growing up was the same anger I heard in both things, and you know, for me, music's, I really like music that's pushes things forward. I really like music that emotionally either comforts me or uh, does something. The girl I'm dating said this great thing of that, like, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that music doesn't always have to be that you're angry and you listen to angry music. It doesn't have to be sad because you're sad. Like, I often, when I'm sad, put on Katy Perry because it cheers me up. Similarly, like, when I'm, like, so happy I put on, like, Never Meant from American Football, even though that's kind of a sad song. So do you think I have a problem? Because when I listen to, when I'm sad, I listen to sad music to get sadder, and when I'm happy, I listen to sad music to get sad. Is that a problem, Jesse? I don't know if it's a problem, but I think that says something about how you self-medicate. So she knows a lot about the braid, and we talk a lot about self-medication. And so I think that's the thing is you're, you may be medicating downwards and maybe that's why you always describe yourself as so sad and I yeah. describe myself there, as so happy as I medicate upwards. The red wine helps but hurts, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit more of the white these days, but yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. There we are. I feel like, do you think a lot of people in your general age group, like Guns N' Roses, was that band? Oh, it's kind of like everyone, right? Well even, like, even in some like musicians that I hear talk about, like Kevin Devine and uh, Matt Pryor, Guns N' Roses was a band that changed their life. Yeah, no, you got you got to realize like Guns N' Roses and uh, Nirvana were just such big moments, and it's like you know you got to remember like those are two of the biggest selling records of all time. So they just had such a wide impact on everybody, and like there's no re- like rock records that have had that that big of a wave aside from Creed. And thankfully, I don't meet a lot of people who are influenced by Creed because I usually run like hell the opposite way of them. But um, yeah, that, I mean, you know, that that's Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction is the second most sustainably selling record in the history of music. Yeah. 
what good or bad bands like so i never there was really never any like music growing up i think i might i might have talked about this in the favorite albums episode like my parents were never like listening there was no music growing up in my house i was always like into music though but not in a way like the first i think the first the first cd i ever bought was a michelle branch cd i'm just gonna go for it I'm going to go for it. That's okay. The first tape I bought was Debbie Gibson, Electric Youth. So it's just is as Is that pathetic. the same thing? I don't know who that is. That's like, the, that's like even, Debbie Gibson was like the proto Britney okay, Spears. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's the thing. So I never like heard music in my house. It's not like my parent. I feel like the, the classic thing is like, yeah, my parents would play the Beatles or Bob Dylan growing up. Are your parents music no, lovers or they just like, listen they privately? Don't dislike, yeah, they don't dislike music or anything. They just, the music is not a thing in their life. There are people like that. Yeah, no, I, well, it's the it's very much the, my father managed bands. My father, you know, uh, has one of the largest record collections. My father also listens to really cool. I got my Smiths and Cure CDs from my yeah, dad. Yeah, that's cool, man. Like Ian, Ian from Modern Baseball, his dad is like the biggest Green Day fan, and like, damn, that's cool. Huh. Yeah, like that's crazy. That's so cool, and uh, like with me, it's like no, there's no music. So the only times like I heard music as a I don't know, the first, like me remembering when I was hearing music would have been like, boy, the Backstreet Boys are on TV. Like, th like that's when I, that's <laughs> when I was, that, those are my child, child, child formative years, you know? Like, I don't know, when Britney Spears was a thing, I was like six or seven, you know? Same for like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And that was everywhere, you know? Like the same way One Direction is there for someone that is like six-year-old now, right? Like that's what that... You know, 20 years or not 20, 15 years ago, it would have been like in sync and Britney Spears. And I don't think I like that music wasn't like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with this. But that's the only music I like knew because I never had any exposure to anything else. Um, but from there, like, I don't know, my, my music trajectory was weird. Like, I, I really liked that Michelle Branch song and I really liked, I really liked that Avril Lavigne record, Jesse. Um, <laughs> and I was so glad when she married Derek Wibley. It felt like all my music connections were just coming together. Um, I, uh, my friend Matt exposed me to some 41 when I was nine and then blink. And that's when like, that's when everything changed, uh, slowly over time. And then I started taking, I started learning like guitar when I was 10 and then it was all blink all the time. Um, slowly. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. For me, that, that's an interesting question because I never, what, what got me into the music where we are now, why we're talking about this is like my friend showed me some 41 and that was it. That's the clear projectory from that, from that moment in time. I can trace everything like, cool. He played me in too deep. Then he played me like aliens exist and dump weed off of enema the state. And I don't know from there. Then it was like, Sugar Colt, Yellow Card, Newfound Glory, whatever. And then in ninth grade, I got into Taking Back Sunday and Brand New, and then on and on. Like, I can trace it. But before then, like, I was into throwaway top 40 music, right? Like, as a lot of people are. But sure. it never... Same, same for yeah, me, though. I don't think it ever held substance to me. And I think that's the thing with many people, and I don't know if this is too broad of, like, a statement, but I feel like unless you get hit really hard by a music, a, a type of music and the community behind it, whether that's punk or dance stuff or hardcore or metal, or whatever, then, you know, you, you may just keep going along sort of the general top 40 track, which is also perfectly fine. Um, but I, I would say for myself, like to answer that question we got, uh, I was just in that top 40 track until I found something that like pushed me, pushed me very far in a different direction. And that's where I've stayed ever since. Yeah. And I think actually, you know, it's like very funny. Cause like, you know, we joked about how I started with hair metal, but like, Really, Guns N' Roses were the punkest band that had come into that scene. And they were the band with the attitude. Like, the big thing for me with Guns N' Roses, I, I can remember I was in fourth or fifth grade, and, like, you hear the song, It's So Easy, and at the time, you did not hear music that cursed like crazy. I think there's 24 curses, and It's So Easy. It's the second song of the record. And you go, holy shit. <laughs> Maybe that's why I curse so much. Um, <laughs> but, like... It's really, really, like, it's a jarring thing for a prepubescent um, kid. And uh, I don't know. I didn't identify with that. And then for me, I went from Nirvana. And then Nirvana opened up the world of, like, friends doing mixtapes. I was very lucky. I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. And we had a punk record store called Let It Rock that I later worked at. Um, 
And I was able to go in there and anything I wanted in the indie and punk underground, I was able to easily get just right after school after I'd made some money. And uh, that kept me digging deeper because the other thing too was we just had such a great punk community and that was so easy. But I think I was always chasing that punk flame. And even what I will say too is like while we make jokes about the dance music I listen to, a lot of the dance music I listen to I think is the same spirit as, of punk is that I listen to a lot of the stuff that really is pushing boundaries and kind of going on the outside of the, the mainstream but still has a pop structure. Um, and I think that's always what I've been interested in, whether it's any genre uh, is that, and that's what I chase. Do you, do you see a correlation in what you've always been interested in post-pop? I think the other thing, too, is about both of us listening to pop music when you're young. It's one, one, it's the easiest, and two, we don't quite have that pubescent thing where our hormones start going crazy and we need to have something comforting right, us. Right, yeah. There's a, you're just like... You're like a child. <laughs> yes. You're just a child, and it's like it's catchy, poppy, silly music. Um, yeah, um, for me, I think the correlation was I spoke about this with someone at, at length this week, so it's in my mind, which is good, I guess. Like, gr- just growing up in the city, there was I couldn't like relate. I don't know. I was always the weird kid out because I all everything I cared about friend wise was in New Jersey and a very different aspect from all these rich kids that were like, you know, fucked up even as like an eight year old, right? And you know, my my friend who didn't come from much money but had a very hardworking family in New Jersey, like, you know, showed me like some forty one, and I was like, oh, like I didn't under, you know, I didn't. I can talk about it now, but I didn't know at the time, like what distortion was or what like punk was or what like any anything musically conceptual. I didn't understand those things then in the way I could talk about, but it all felt very much like it was angry against something. And that's what I wanted to like latch onto, I guess. Um, and I did. And I remember you talked about cursing a little bit. Like when I was 12 or 13, maybe I got the Mark, Tom and Travis show in the mail and I played, and I had I had no idea what was on it, right? Except that it was like a live record, and I put it in my car with my dad, and I started playing it, and like my dad was like, "You can never play the CD again." <laughs> and I had the thing was I had no idea what was on it, and then all of a sudden, like you know, like Mark Hoppus or Tom DeLonge's like talking about smearing like Skiffy's peanut, uh, not Skiffy's, uh, what? Uh, yeah, pin bitter butter on like Mark Hoppus's like dad's balls, you know? And I was like, oh my God, what is this? Yeah, what is this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Just never in front of my dad again, who will be listening to this episode. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I just think it was such a revolt. Like the, the first time and ever since that I've been able to grasp onto music was just that there's a revolt, there's anger, there's pushback. And then on the other spectrum for me, there's, very internal, introspective kind of thinking, which often leads to sadness on the music end of it. But like, yeah, like those are the two things I tend to grasp to as a person. A lot of stuff pisses me off and a lot of stuff makes me sad. But that doesn't mean I can't listen to music that makes me happy. Like listening to Enemy of the State or listening to a Newfound Glory record, that's usually like pure bliss for me. Um, And I'm just like, yeah, this is the best of the best. Hell yeah, I'm listening to this and this rules. But still, within those songs, there's elements of I don't fit in, I'm pushing back against society. And that's, for me as a music listener, like that is always what I've been, uh, uh, I guess, attracted to. So I think there's an interesting correlation in both of us, but then there's the disparity. It's like, so my father, he hears me listen to this, he's like, yeah, you go, boy, you just do it. Because like my father's such a music lover, he's like, whatever you embrace, you're good. I mean, my parents' style very much was also let this wolf run wild. So um, that was something. You and, you're talking about that you were alienated by your New York friends. I think that that was a big thing for me is that um, till I got to high school, until I really started making friends on the internet, I had no one I identified with because most of the bad kids were not like me. They were kind of idiots. They didn't like reading and bettering themselves and I felt very alone. And so I listened to a lot of music that took that, and I was should also say that while I'm don't experience depression in my adult life, I was a brutally depressed kid, and I found music that comforted that depression and that alienation, and that's kind of what I was always searching for. And it's funny though that now, as somebody with very 
opposite emotions than that, that I still find a lot of joy in it. But um, I think it's interesting that you talk about the alienation thing. And I think alienation really does play so much into music. Like I even think about like you're talking about some 41, like one of the best videos I think ever made is that video for fat lip oh, because it so just good. like, like I talk about it in my book is like, to me, that was the most genius book. Cause like they, you know, the punk scene I grew up in, if you liked hip hop and you were thinking about bringing that in to punk, we were going to push you away as fast as we could. And as somebody who loved hip hop and punk, I kind of viewed them as church and state. And I was kind of on that side of like, no, 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 keep these separate. But what they did with that video is they said, look, here's punk kids. We're being punk kids. We're outside the mainstream. And yes, we look like all of you, but we like hip hop and we like punk too. And it was one of the most genius the videos I think video ever made. music video comment is a really good one, actually, because to me, personally, like in the music business hat on that I'm wearing as I'm saying this, like, God, no one watches music videos today. They're often pointless, but when they weren't, mm. often, I'm not saying always, mm. but a lot, you know, it's you see less and less that good videos are being made and changing things or, or being effective. I, I, I will not agree. We're, we're going to do this. Go okay. ahead. Uh, but so for me, like watching some 41 music videos or, you know, Blink and some 41 had the best music videos in pop punk, like hands down. There's just nothing better. Like, sure. No, they, they were, were they so were incredible. Like watching a music video for Adam's song, right? Like, or stay together for the kids. Like that added, that added a lot of impact. I think like I would just watch that because I didn't have anything else to do when I was in sixth grade. You know, I'd watch those all day and I would listen to the music all day, just watching the videos. Um, and it had an impact. And yeah, I went through like a lot of depression as someone in, in middle school and high school as well um, until somewhere later on in junior year. And like all, all I, again, and no one, I could not, I could not relate to anyone, you know, anywhere really, like whatever state, whatever city, whatever school I was in. And to me, like coming home and listening to whatever band or watching their music video for whatever, like that really shaped and was so essential for me. It's really interesting. Like it's not something, I guess I'm glad that I don't have to go through that today, right? But it's not yes. something, I assume, hopefully, that it's something that I'll never experience again in any kind of way in my life where it's like some uh, a tool that was not a human being, and I'm not saying a tool as like an, an, a person that's an idiot, but like using something to mm. get through something and, and love deeply and fall in love with it and have this attachment that is lifelong. Like you only experience that a few times in your life. And I think a lot of people never experience that with music, um, but it's so clear to the ones that do, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's the thing too, is that's what, you know, as somebody who's 36 now is the people who've really stuck with their relationship with music, I think were the people who needed it the most in their youth. And I see it in even like, if there's one thing I can get on the level of, of like whenever I meet a new adult in the music business, no offense, I know you're 21 now. Um, but, uh, you know, is that you had this formative thing where, like, music really was the thing that got you through it. It's the one thing I usually feel like, even, like, when it's, like, some square John Mayer-loving dork from the music business that I can get on their level is that, like, there was something that was so important in music in their childhood that they've decided, like, yeah, I'm I'm doing this. And this is where I'm going for a long, long, long time. And, uh like it's a, it's a, a very interesting thing. I find myself I have very I have a lot of trouble bonding with anybody, and it's very interesting because like you and I immediately bonded as friends years ago, and it's funny to see that we did come from a similar place w w in music with this. Yeah, no, it's definitely yeah, it's a it's a intangible thing that you either go through or experience or have or you don't, and it doesn't really make you a better or worse person. Obviously, it's just uh, it's it's. It's who you totally, bond with, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's just friends kind of thing. <laughs> so so you talked about how you still felt very alone. Was the internet the cure for that for you? To get even to get into the tech side of our podcast? Sorry, wait. Was the internet... Like, so you said that no matter whether you were in New York or New Jersey, you still felt very yeah, I think, alone. I think, yeah, I was always really alienated until... And I, this, again, this like really stuck through until the end of high school. And even, like, I don't, even in college, I have like three friends in college. Like, that's it. 
<laughs> um, and I, all my friends, yeah, I, I, I think I've maybe talked about this before, but when I was in middle school and early high school, like I, I spent all of my time, truly any time I was on the internet, I was glued to this punk message board called Punk Disasters. That's where I spent all my time. That's where I met one of my best friends, Connor, who lives in Oregon, who then years later connected me to now my girlfriend of two years. Like, like, you know, like I've had lifelong friends out of this. It so happens that Joe and Nick from Knuckle Puck were a, a member of this message board and that there was this girl, Demi, from Australia who is now dating Nick and Knuckle Puck and they're in a very, very, very long distance relationship. And it's like, yeah, this message board, I have my friend Matt Vogel, who's a photographer that tours with bands and works for Adobe. Like, I've known him for seven years. Like, there are people now that I've known for seven years just from this message board. And this was like, this that message board to me is why the internet is like the most important thing in my life, really, at the end of the day. It's a whole world that I was never connected to my world. Like, in the real life world, I was never connected to anything fully because I no one could connect with me. And then I, I found the internet in a meaningful way and I connected to all these people that loved similar things I loved and went through these same experiences. And yeah, that, that totally cured it. Like, you know, I most of my friends, I guess this is a little different now, but, you know, so many of my friends do not live where I live. And that's great. That's cool because when I go into California at some point this year, I'm going to see more friends in two days than I probably had all of my time growing up in school. And I ne- and they and they live to me mostly on the internet. And then I hang out with them when I visit their state. Like that's the coolest thing. And the whole bond there is we all went through the same thing musically. And that like nothing is cooler than that. Yeah. And what's very funny for me, and it's just the difference is, is like it's now 19 years down the line. And like, you know, this Friday, I was barbecuing with a friend I made on alt.punk in 1995. Um, and most of my friends, one of the best things is my uh, one of my closest friends, uh, we went to high school together. We hated each other because I wore pop punk shirts and he wore like crusty punk shirts. And then we got to talking on an AOL punk chat room. And he said, where do you live? And Montclair, then we realized we went to high school together and had to admit we like each other. Damn. Yeah, that's like and crazy. It was, yeah, like it was very, you know, we laugh about it now and it's like, you know, a very funny thing. And it's very funny because we still have differences. You know, he's conservative, I'm liberal. He's a professor at a college and I do what I do, but like we're the best of friends. And But I even have that, I mean, the people I met on alt-punk, alt-music hardcore, and punk chat, like, if I look through my friends list and the people I talk to the most, it's that, and it's going to punk shows at CBGBs and the Pipeline and VFW halls. Um, throughout that, I mean, you, you know, it's, like, even funny. It's, like, you know, I, anybody I... Even anybody I know right now in my life, I could pretty much draw that friendship back in some way to a punk message board or a VFW hall or CBGB show. One of those three things, there's pretty much no relationship I have in my life 19 years later that don't totally. go back I can, I can only, my one best friend forever is non-music. It, it's funny because he's the one that showed me some 41, but we don't bond over music. Like he doesn't listen to any music I listen to, but he, at that point he showed me to some 41. So there's that, but like, I don't count him in that. So yeah, I probably have like three legitimate friends where the bond isn't in some way music. And that that doesn't mean all we do is talk about music, but the connection there, right? The initial connection or future of that friendship isn't around music. And that's crazy in a lot of ways, you know? Like I think I feel like most people don't have that. And some people may be like, that's really weird that you only are friends with people that like similar music. And no, a lot of people I'm friends with don't like the same music I do as all. At all, but... It, but well, yeah, I, m- most of the people I know don't listen right. to anything li- li- like what I like, but we met exactly, music at exactly. some point and in I, our like, life. That's so... Uh, we're, we're very lucky, and it's very rare. It's, it's cool. Mm-hmm. It's cool. <laughs> Thank you to everyone for listening to Off The Record this week. Head to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes, to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z Zarillo and 
our podcast is at Off the Record FM. We'll be back next week.